So this reading is from 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and 15 to 20. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So last year, being the beginning of a new year, uh, we started a new series where we're taking a look at where our church could be going uh, in the future, down the road. And so I was talking to someone uh, last week, and they were telling me about uh, a comment that their significant other made to them after the service. And the comment went something like this. I think Brandon sees this church a lot differently than I do. And they were like, well, why would you say that? Uh, So basically, I stood up here last Sunday, for those of you who weren't here, and I talked about, like, I gave an update on how our church has been growing over the last five years, as if it were 2025. And to my credit, I had a giant 2025 on the screen, because I wanted to try to, to help this out, to figure this out. Like, I'm trying to be in the future and talk about how far we've come since the beginning of 2020. But apparently I didn't communicate very clearly. Or apparently someone fell asleep for a few minutes uh, at the beginning of the message. But that's what I did, because I wanted us to share something that our, our leadership, our church leadership is casting some vision for. This is where we would like to be. We would like to be able to say these things about ourselves. And if you missed it, uh, you can find it on our website if you go to uh, the This Week page. Uh, this idea came actually from an experience that I had about 10 years ago uh, when I, we had a church uh, called New Hope merged with Elevation, and some people from New Hope were part of an organization locally, a, non, a nonprofit organization that had a leadership retreat, and they invited me to join them for this, and there was this exercise about kind of setting goals for your life, and basically the way the exercise went is that the first thing that you had to do was you had to um, write a story of, that you would be telling in the present tense, but in the future, okay? So this is where I got this idea idea from. And the idea was that you're supposed to think about your life, maybe five years down the road, maybe 10 years down the road, and write this narrative of this is, this is how I feel, this is what's going on in my life, this is where I've come, and this is what I'm proud of, or this is what's going on. And you're supposed to try to get into the feeling of it, the emotion of it, like this is what it feels to be like in this new place of life. And then you kind of go back and you look at the present, and you're brutally honest about the present. That's the second part of the exercise. And from there you say, okay, well, what do I have to do? I've got to make some, some goals if I'm going to be able to get from, from this place, the, the present, to this, this dream or this vision that I have for the future. And so what I'm trying to do in the month of January and what we're trying to do here as a church leadership is to try to say, this is this picture that we see of the future. And really what we'll be doing in the months to follow is saying, okay, now let's take a really good honest look at our present reality so we can set some goals. How do we get from A to B? This is what we want to do together. And so last week we started with this theme called A Place to Call Home. 
where we said essentially, uh, boiling the entire message down to a 10-second snippet here, that five years from now, we want to have a good idea of what our home is for the long term. 22 Willow has been an incredible home for us for the last seven years, but there are question marks about the future. So when it comes to the future, we want to say, we want to know where we're going to be for the long run. So within five years, we're going to figure that one out. Next week, Kristen Taylor is going to be talking to us about a renewed spiritual vitality. So talking about how can we grow in our spiritual lives over the course of the next few years. And then the following week at the end of January, I'm going to be talking about a diverse community. What are the things that we envision when we picture our church as a more diverse community five years from now? But this morning, I want to talk about a culture of invitation. We've all received invitations uh, ever since we were young, first time you get an invitation to a birthday party, and we can react differently to to different invitations. I think that the first invitations you get when you're a child, they're always excited. When you get that birthday invitation, it's great. You want to go to that party, and it's exciting, and you go and you buy the present, and you're getting all excited about it. As you go on through years, occasionally you get an invitation that you have a different reaction to, right? Like, maybe you're excited when you get an an invitation in the mail or in your inbox, but maybe you're annoyed by the invitation. Like, seriously, they chose that weekend to get married? Now I can't, like, you know, maybe it's a little off-putting for you. Or maybe you're nervous about the invitation. Maybe the event that you're invited to is something that, you know, makes you feel anxious, and you're like, okay, I'm glad that I was invited, but I'm actually nervous about this invitation. Or maybe you're confused by the invitation. Maybe you get an invitation that wasn't intended for you, and you're like, I don't even know these people, or I don't even know this place. Uh, So there are all kinds of different ways that we can react to invitations. When we take a look at Jesus' story and his life, invitation to follow him was a common theme. And so I want to just take a look at a few quick snapshots to help frame where we're going to go the rest of the morning. The first one comes from Matthew chapter 4. This is very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So for really 30 years of his life, we don't know a whole lot about what was going on. But as he was baptized in the Jordan River by John, and then he begins this public part of his life, which we know a lot about. And this is really how it began. We read in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, that as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So in some cases, Jesus invited people to follow him, and they just dropped what they were doing and followed. It was just that simple. But it wasn't always that simple. Another story comes from Matthew chapter 19. And in this instance, he was talking with someone who is very wealthy. This is Matthew 19, verses 21 to 23. And so the conversation begins. They're just talking about what things matter the most in life. Then Jesus kind of purports, he says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So there's the invitation. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so here we have the same invitation that was given to the fishermen, but in this case, there's a barrier. In this case, the invitation comes across as maybe a little bit offensive or just too difficult to follow through with. Dallas Willard says the good news of the kingdom is an all-encompassing invitation to live life under the rule of God. And so for some, that's actually a really challenging thing. Now I want to take a look on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's one thing for Jesus to ask people to follow him, to invite people, but 
he put the same challenge to his followers. One of the last things he said is that you're supposed to go out to the ends of the earth and share this good news with everyone you can see. Uh, and so his followers began to do this. On a day known as the day of Pentecost, Peter gets up, he preaches this sermon, and this is how it ends. He says uh, towards the end of the sermon, this is found in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom he'd be talking about in this sermon of his, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are fall off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so here is another invitation to follow that is eagerly responded to, but this time it's not actually Jesus doing the invitation. It's his followers. And it was responded to really positively. But sometimes the response isn't as positive. And so there, was, uh, a lot, there were a lot of people, um, as the church was growing and as Peter and the other apostles were, were preaching and telling this good news about Jesus, a lot of people were rejecting it, including someone by the name of Saul. He was a leader in the Jewish community at the time. And Acts chapter 9 begins by saying that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, those were the followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Well, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So here is someone who initially was rejecting this invitation to follow Jesus, but Jesus actually confronts him and says, no, it's actually me, like, I'm the one that you want to follow here. And so Saul drops everything to follow Jesus. Even in the face of resistance and hostility, the invitation is still extended. And it was the same Saul, who is also known as Paul, who went on to write much of the New Testament of our Bibles, including the passage that was read for us this morning from 2 Corinthians 5. So the reading began this way. Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. So Paul had this miraculous encounter with Jesus. He understood what it was to follow him. And he's like, since I know like, how significant this God is, I want to persuade other people to follow me. Now, I don't know about you. We've all had different experiences with church and religion in the past. But my past experiences with inviting people to faith makes me second-guess myself sometimes, even after all these years. When I think back to uh, my teenage years, my young adult years, when I think about um, some of the ways that I was told to, that I should be inviting people to faith, uh, I kind of shake my head at myself. I think about a time towards the end of high school, I spent my March break at a, basically it was kind of like a March break trip uh, that a bunch of youth from our church went to. And we were uh, basically instructed on a couple of different occasions. One of them, we were dropped downtown Toronto. So we were at the corner of uh, Young and Dundas. And we were just dropped off on the street corner and said, walk around and tell people about Jesus. Now that's not intimidating at all, is it? And so this is what we did, like this bunch of kids who didn't really know anything about anything, walking around up to total strangers like, hey, do you want to talk about Jesus? No, get away from me, okay. Um, and we just did that for a couple hours and, and then went back to the church and slept. Um, 
And then it was like the next day, they gave us a big stack of books. If you've been around church for a long time, you might remember the Y books. I don't know. Anyways, it was this, they actually were really well done books. They were these beautiful, kind of beautifully written and beautifully illustrated books about like asking this question, why am I on this earth? So they were really good. The content was really good. But the delivery method was sketchy. So we would, again, just walk up to random doors, knock on a door. Hi, do you want a book? And do you want to talk about Jesus? And people were like, no, I'm like cleaning my kitchen. Leave me alone. You know, and, and they would shut the door in our face. And, but the goal was to get rid of all these books by the end of the day. And I think of that as just like, man, why was, like, why was that the way that we invited people to faith? I think about this dramatic production that the church I was a part of used to hold. And, and I, I'm not pointing the fingers at anyone because I was in this production. I played significant roles in this production. It was called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And again, if, you know, if you have not been around church for long, I just want to say you're lucky. Um, because you don't have this, like, sordid past like, like some of us do, right? So the way this production went is that it, there were a bunch of little vignettes, dramatic things that, uh, that would take place. And it was a scene where someone would get hit by a bus, and someone would get hit by a car, and someone would get hit by an airplane or whatever. Like, it's just people dying constantly. And every time someone died, they would either go to heaven or hell. And this would be enacted. If it went to heaven, then the, the curtains would come by and Jesus would walk down and give you a hug and it was awesome. Um, but if you went to hell, things got really bad. And I know they were bad because one of the years I played the devil. And so uh, the microphone, they had this like special effect and it was like, my voice was like this. It was really scary. And, and the, the whole idea like seemed to be that if we can scare the pants off of people and then they will want to follow Jesus. And that was basically the model. And this seemed completely normal and healthy to me for like years. And then one day, uh, Melissa and I were out in Calgary. We were, um, we were getting ready to plant our student church, uh, which, which would have happened that next fall. And we were visiting a couple of different groups that were, ha- that were taking place in Calgary. And, and we met uh, this guy named Tom. And uh, he was pastoring this church there. They were doing really innovative things. And so we met him, and he's like, oh, before you leave, let's get together for coffee. And so we got together for coffee um, at the airport, like an hour before our flight left. And he basically, like, took, like, everything that we thought Christianity was and, like, tore it all to pieces and gave us a new idea of what Christian faith could be. And he asked us about this play, and we're like, oh, yeah, isn't that awesome? Like, it's such a great thing. And he asked us this question. And I remember, this is, like, 20-some years ago, but I remember it so clearly. He said, what kind of a God would make a little girl watch her mother being dragged into hell? Good point. Yeah, probably not God at all. And the reason I share this story is, in a sense, like, trying to say, wow, like, how did we do these things? But there's this other part of it where it's like, what we invite, the ways that we invite people to faith they say a lot about who God is. They say a lot about the Jesus that we're inviting people to follow. And so to look back it critically on the past is one thing, but to look critically on the present and, and what it means for us to invite people today is equally as important. I was listening to a podcast this week, and they were talking at one point, there was just a bit of a tangent, they were talking about some of the key indicators of a cult. Like, these are the things that, that mark out a cult. And there was a number of them, but then there was one line that I jotted down when I was finished le- listening. It said, uh, an insistence on bringing new people in. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And again, along with all of the other things, yes, that makes up a cult. But I was like, an insistence on bringing new people in is actually a part of Christianity. 
It actually has always been a part of the Christian faith. It's one of the, again, like I said earlier, one of the last things Jesus said was, okay, get out everywhere, share the good news with everyone you can find. And so an insistence on bringing people in has always been a part of the Christian faith. For Christ's love compels us, Paul writes, because we're convinced that if one died for all, therefore all died, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now, if you are looking for a good poutine, the place to go is the Crazy Canuck. I don't know if you've had poutine the Crazy Canuck on Weaver Street in Waterloo, but it is the best poutine in town. And I tell people this all the time because I like a good poutine. Like, every restaurant has poutine on its menu, but a lot of them are just terrible. Like, there's either no cheese on it, or the gravy's no good at all, or the, the fries are just cheap. But the Crazy Canuck makes a really good poutine. All three of those elements are perfect in perfect proportion. Is anyone getting hungry now? Now, everywhere, now honestly, whenever the, concept, whenever the topic of poutine comes up, I always mention, oh, the best place in town is the Crazy Canuck. It's the only poutine worth eating. And I tell people this all the time because I really enjoy it. The value that poutine adds to my life compels me to tell other people about it. All right? You're wondering where that was going. You're like, why is this guy talking about poutine all of a sudden? Um, it compels me to tell other people about it. I do not get a cut of their profits. I don't even get a little discount. Even for sharing how great their poutine is with all of these people this morning, I will still have to pay full price next time I go there. So it's not, I don't get a benefit from doing this. It's just that I love it so much that I want other people to have that same experience. Now, I don't think that anyone here who truly understands the love of God would be comfortable comparing it to even a really good poutine. So what's getting in the way? Like, really, God's love is so much better than poutine, so shouldn't we be that much more eager to just let everyone know about it? But we're not. So why? What are some of the problems? Well, one is I think that a lot of us don't know how. How do you do this? If you don't walk up to a stranger on the corner of Young and Dundas in downtown Toronto, and if you don't knock on strangers' doors, and if you don't do dramatic productions that scare people, what do you do? And so I think for a lot of us, we don't actually know what to do. How do we invite someone to follow Jesus? I think another factor that gets in the way is the risk to the relationship. I think in a lot of cases, even if we think someone would be interested in hearing this, we think, well, what if they respond negatively? What if what I say is offensive to them? Then I maybe risk losing this relationship. And is it really worth it? Maybe it would be better to hang on to this relationship than to risk introducing them to God. And I think another factor would be our personal doubts, right? I think a lot of us have doubts. A lot of us don't really understand maybe quite fully if we're good with God, so how would we invite other people into something that we have our own doubts about, right? And there are probably other ideas too, and we'll talk about this around tables and discussion, and, and we'll certainly talk about this a lot more kind of in the months to come as we explore this piece of our vision. But one of the things that I wrote and shared last Sunday morning was, uh, again, in the year 2025, saying that I'm proud of the way we've owned our responsibility to share the story of Jesus with those in our circles of influence. But actually, when I was rereading it this week, I thought, oh, I already made a mistake. I probably shouldn't have used the word responsibility, because that's like, there's like a negative connotation with that, like, oh, it's my responsibility. I better go out and do this, as opposed to saying, like, no, maybe I should have written that we've owned the opportunity that we have to share this story with people. All of it begins with the belief that the faith that we value so much in our own lives is worth sharing beyond these walls. From there, the question then is how? 
Again, we'll explore this in much more detail in the months and years to come. But uh, Dallas Willard wrote this book. It was actually kind of produced after he passed away. It's called The Allure of Gentleness. And that is kind of used to describe the way that we invite people into the kingdom, the allure of gentleness, that there's a way that we live and a way that we share this message that, that draws people in because not we're scaring people or not we're catching them off guard, but the gentle way that we live out our lives is compelling to people. He says that the job is essentially aiding others in removing doubts that hinder their enthusiastic and full participation in the kingdom of the heavens. So what isn't getting in the way of this friend or neighbor or family member or coworker? What's getting in the way of them fully participating in, the, in life the way God has created them to live it? What's getting in the way and how can I remove some of those barriers? That's the allure of gentleness. There's a kind of invitation that is a genuine expression of our love and that can be expressed naturally. Along with an acknowledgement, in the words of Stanley Hauerwas, that change, if it is significant, takes time. Again, when I think back to the invitations of my church past, it was always, what's the quickest way to get someone to make a decision that will affect the rest of their life? How can we make them get, make a decision right on, the, right on the snuff of a finger here? As opposed to saying, no, significant change will take time. He goes on to say that any change that is accomplished non-violently comes about through honest persuasion. I like those words. All right, back to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, let's find this passage here, verses 18 to 19. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he's committed us to us the message of reconciliation. It's good news. The good news is that like, God is good with us, and he just wants you to be in relationship with him. That's the news we're sharing. I want to share a reflection, actually, that Susan Fish wrote, a member of our community and currently leading our children's ministry here. She wrote this in the fall, and I'm just going to read it word for word. She says, Every Sunday morning, I sit in the pew of my church. It was built more than a half century ago with an eye to craftsmanship and a substantial budget. High on its external walls are a series of stained glass windows depicting the events of Jesus' life. One of my Sunday morning rituals is to look up randomly at one window or another and to ponder how the particular image might speak to my life. I remember one morning when the light was just right and the windows cast rainbow prisms on the carpet and pews all around the church. I was hoping that at this moment the sun would just burst in. Not quite. Anyways. But stand outside any day and look at the same windows and they look merely darkened. One evening last fall, though, I was riding my bike on the trail that runs beside the church when I suddenly stopped in my tracks. Something was going on inside the church, so all the lights were on. This meant that no longer were the colorful glass scenes for those on the inside. Instead, those in the church got to see the glowing jewel tones. Those outside the church got to see the glowing jewel tones, all the more stunning because of the contrast with the darkness around the church. A city on a hill, Jesus said, cannot be hidden. Neither does someone light a lamp only to hide it under a basket. You are to the light of the world, Jesus tells his followers, illuminating the darkness. It's the one time he says the same of the church as he says of himself. We may be told to feed others, but we are not the bread of life as he is. Nor are we the vine or the good shepherd, but like him we are called to be the light, to shine, to live our lives before others in such a way that they will see God and glorify him. When we live in the light, it can be easy to forget just how dark things can be outside, or instead to be afraid of the dark and what might lurk there in the shadows. But instead, Jesus invites us to shine like that city on the hill, like that lamp, like the stained glass shining out beautiful color and life-giving cold on a cold, dark night. Unlike bread, light does not need a miracle to be shared. It only needs us not to block it, 
to open the doors for those who are tired of journeying in darkness and to welcome them in. I read a book about money this week. It suggested we tend to believe happiness comes from buying large screen TVs, even though it's proven that happiness increases far more when we give money to benefit others. The same can perhaps be seen here when it comes to community. It's very human to huddle together around the fire at night, to cozy up together in the light, safe from the things that inhabit the night. But Jesus says the light is not meant for the church alone, but also for those riding past or standing outside it. Our community grows better by opening the doors, by sharing the light. In fact, one of the reasons we don't put a lamp under a basket is because we know what can happen if we do. Either the flame will be snuffed out by a lack of oxygen, or there will be a conflagration, a dangerous fire, rather than what Jesus intended, a beautiful beacon of hope for those out on a dark night. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the verse that all those years ago inspired the name of our student church, the embassy. The idea that we could be ambassadors, that we had a message that was worth sharing. I had dropped out of business school at Laurier after two years, and I was doing my studies in the little kind of office of our two-room apartment on Herb Street, and I remember thinking about all of the people that I went to school with. I didn't know another Christian at Laurier when I was there. It's not to say there weren't others, certainly there were, but I didn't know anyone. None of my circle of friends were people of faith. And I started thinking about, well, who is going to share the message with them? Who's going to represent God to them. It's like Susan writes, to open the doors for those who are tired of journeying in darkness and to welcome them in. Back to the vision I shared last week. We've always said that elevation is a place for the spiritually curious, but now we're finally being proactive about it by creating opportunities for people who don't have much or even any church experience to journey alongside of us. Thomas Merton writes that the church is called to keep alive on earth this irreplaceable climate of mercy, truth, and faith, in which the creative and life-giving joy of reconciliation in Christ is a continued and ever-renewed activity. That's a beautiful reminder. Like, we have this incredible task that we're called to. And so, I imagined five years from now that we would have stories of these neighbors groups that Melissa Burke was talking about earlier this morning, uh, that we would be inviting people from our neighborhoods, not just our neighbors in our church community, but neighbors who live around us, and that people would be introduced to Jesus as a result of those kinds of relationships. I shared as well the idea of setting aside certain Sundays as like super low barrier Sundays. It's not something that we are currently doing, and we may not even do it at all, but the idea of like what are the kinds of things that we can do? How can we make changes that make it easier for people to encounter Jesus? Those are the kinds of conversations we're going to have in the months to come. At this stage, there isn't a plan in place, but it's a commitment to be intentional. And so who knows what will happen when people in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces begin to journey alongside us in faith. Now, before I wrap up here, I've got to acknowledge that some of you here this morning are most likely, would most likely describe yourselves as being on the outside looking in. And so what is my hope there? Because I don't for a second thing that everyone sitting here on a Sunday morning shares the same faith that I do. The first thing that I would say is that I want you to know that you belong. A number of years ago when we tried to articulate the things that mattered the most to us at Elevation, one of them, we came up with these key values, and one of them is called a journey mentality, and part of how we describe that is this way. We want to be present with people at whatever part of the journey of life they find themselves on, whether they share our faith or not. 
That's an important thing to us. So it's not about believing and living exactly the same way as me or anyone else in order to be a part of this community. So you belong here. The second thing that I would want to say is that regardless about how you might feel about the invitation or about this whole conversation this morning about inviting people to follow Jesus, that you would know it's coming from a place of genuine love out of a desire to share some good news that has made all of the difference in so many of our lives. That's the motivation behind it all. And so for all of us, uh, as we think about, well, what do we do from here? How do we move on from a message like this? I'll close with the words of Dallas Willard, and then we'll pray together. He says, the ultimate apologetic, and by apologetic he means like an, an explanation of faith or a defense of faith, the ultimate apologetic is the life of the individual who is living out of the resources of the kingdom of God. The best way to invite someone to a life of following Jesus is to follow Jesus yourself. I invite you to stand. Lord, all of this talk, any kind of visioning or planning, any of this all begins with the invitation that you extend to us. You gave your son for us. You invite us to follow. You extend your love and mercy first and invite us to respond to that. And so, God, we're grateful for that and just want to acknowledge that. And I pray that as we begin these conversations about what it would mean for us to have a, a culture of invitation be part of what defines elevation, I ask that your spirit would lead us and go ahead of us. Help us to understand what your heart is for us in this city and beyond. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.